You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. Our guest for this episode is comedian Josh Johnson. He does stand up, he's a podcaster. He's written for some of the biggest shows out there, including The Tonight Show. Starring Jimmy Fallon. Does it trip you out that everyone in a rom-com has enough money to make it work? He's an Emmy nominee, an NAACP award winner, and is one of Comedy Central's most watched comedians ever with 40 million views. You, I've never had to prove I was black for so I got mad, but then the matter I got, the whiter I sounded. <laughs> Until the point where I was just standing from like, by golly, I'm black, gosh darn it! Josh, thank you so much for joining us at The Blackest Questions. Are you ready to play? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Thank you for having me here. I will say just up top as a little disclaimer, I I barely know myself. So if I get everything wrong, I, I just don't want to be judged, you know, preemptively. I want to like manage expectations, you know? Listen, we've had guests that have had zero out of five. We've had guests, I think we may have had one or two, four and five out of fives. But listen, everyone has a blast. Our listeners learn a ton. We're all on this journey together. So let's get started with question number one. How about Mm -hmm. that? Okay. This comedian was the first comic from South Africa to appear on late night TV in the States. Who is he? Yeah, I feel like the most obvious one could be the wrong one. But I'll say Trevor Noah. You are correct. Okay, there we go. Trevor Noah was born in South Africa during apartheid. And because interracial relationships were illegal, his parents often had to hide him from the police. So Trevor grew up in a city just outside of Johannesburg that was set aside for black people. What's amazing about this place is that nothing's changed in a good way. It's like a museum. That's what it is. And after being dared by his friends to perform during a comedy open mic night when he was 22 years old, he quickly realized he had talent. So for several years, he performed in nightclubs, hosted television shows and even competed in a reality dance show before moving to America in 2012. So Trevor Noah eventually began appearing on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and later took over the show as host in 2015. And earlier this year, he announced he was stepping down. So, Josh, we know that you uh, you know Trevor Noah well, and you've even toured with him as his opening act. Tell us what that was like. I mean, it was a great time. It was it was my first time, every time, performing in front of that many people. That was that was truly wild. Uh, but it was it was a really incredible experience. Toured together for like four years. Uh, so it it was. Amazing, and got to sort of lap America a couple times, and and do some of the same venues again. So it was cool to go back and everything, and it just taught me a lot about about audience, about stand up, about stage presence. A lot of it really came through, and and there was a lot of growth in that in that period where we were working together. Well, as a political scientist, I'm obsessed with comedians because you all see so much of the world and so much of the United States, you know, not just major cities. When you all are touring, you sometimes go to tier two, tier three cities. 
and you really get like a pulse of what people think about, how they think about really important issues. What's one of the favorite, one of your favorite locations to do stand up? I'm biased, but I, I think for me, it's, it's Chicago because Chicago is where I started and everything. And I think that in the Midwest, you just get a lot of uh, comedy fans that are very cl- like clearly keen on going to a show and they don't need the person to be famous. They just need them to be funny. And I think that is not that rare. You know, there are most places you go where people just want to see a comedy show and have fun or they've never been to a comedy show before and want to try it out. But I think that there is this thing of like, I want to see the most famous comedian or I want to see this specific person or something. I think people going to a show for the sake of being at a show is uh, the purest, the purest form of performance, because then you're you're just giving people what you have and they're taking it all in. Okay, And tell us a little bit more about your time as a writer on The Daily Show, because that takes you away from sort of touring and being in front of uh you know, an audience, but in front of a different type of audience uh, as a writer. I think that for the most part, it just added to the the overall experience of performing and everything, because it, at Daily Show, I've learned a lot about telling story, keeping people engaged and everything. And, and it's really helped my stand up overall. And I've been blessed enough that, you know, I, I work at the show and then I can go out at night and still do spots, still do comedy and everything. And then on the weekends, I can travel and everything. So it's it's really been the biggest boost, not just to my career, but I think to the overall process that I approach comedy with. And is your process more singular or do you like the collaborative effort of writing with the team? I, I like collab- collaborating with people to me is the I don't know how to describe this really, but it gets to the heart of um, what the best joke is the quickest to me. Because you can sit there by yourself and, and like really think about something and try to crack whatever your your thought is, try to distill it down to make it accessible to everyone. Or you could just talk it out. And I think talking it out is this really beautiful way of all of us getting there together. And I think you see the results of that. Um, whereas with stand-up, because stand-up is so uniquely and specifically your perspective on the world, it makes more sense for that to be a loner game, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is a great segue because before we take a quick commercial break, tell us a little bit more about your comedy special that's now streaming on Peacock titled Up Here Killing Myself. Poor in Louisiana somehow feels extra poor. <laughs> There's something about being poor next to a swamp that makes you go, oh, I might not make it out of this. Okay. Yeah, so I, I did the special. We released it February of this year, and it's basically a, a special that took I took an hour of my talk therapy with a therapist and, and wrote jokes around all the subject matter and then put it out as a special. And so in the actual special, we'll juxtapose from like a scene in therapy to being on stage. And I think it marries the two ideas together really well that I've used both to process and, and heal and everything and, and give back things that things that in the past really bothered me. And now I've, I've, I've done the work to make them funny or, or hopefully make them relatable to as many people as possible. Right. Cause I feel like in this moment, I mean, this is why comedians are so important to society. And I say this all the time on the podcast because you all, help us remember while also simultaneously helping us forget. 
you know, you all bring up issues that so many of us are grappling with, especially, you know, been on lockdown and COVID. But then also for, you know, whether it's 30 minutes or 60 minutes, you help us forget about all of our problems simultaneously while also talking about our problems. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think I think <laughs> you've you've made a better case for comedy than I think most comedians usually do. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. I'm with Josh Johnson. We're talking about his new Peacock special entitled Up Here Killing Myself. We'll be right back if you're listening to The Blackest Question. Okay, we are back. I'm with comedian Josh Johnson. We're just talking about his new special on Peacock, Up Here Killing Myself. Josh, are you ready for question number two of The Blackest Question? I I think so. I think I, so. I think, yeah, yeah. That's what everyone says. Don't worry, you're in, you're in good hands here at the Grio. Okay, question number two. This politician made history when she was elected mayor of one of the country's largest cities. She's the first openly gay black woman to be mayor of any major city in the United States. Who is she and what city? Um, I believe it's Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. Is that... You are correct. Okay. Lori Lightfoot we did was it. A... We did it. Come on. You know, you're, you're killing the game out here. Lori Lightfoot was elected mayor of Chicago in 2019, the first black woman to ever hold the position. She did not win a re-election this year, which is the first time a Chicago mayor has not won re-election in nearly 40 years. Uh, Lightfoot is an attorney by training and served on the Chicago Police Board and the city's police accountability task force before becoming mayor. She's openly discussed the death of her family member being killed by the KKK as a driving force behind her commitment to public service and injustice. And shout out to Lori's successor after a really intense runoff. Brandon Johnson, an educator and a union organizer, will now lead the country's third largest city. His leadership will signal a new start to Chicago, saying he truly invests in all of its people. So Chicago's in for a new day, Josh. Um, we know that you lived in Chicago at one period of time. It's your favorite city to do some comedy. Um, tell us a little bit more about your time in Chicago. Where exactly did you live? So I lived in Rogers Park almost the entire time. And uh, then I would go down to other parts for the shows and everything. So went down to the South Side back when Jokes and Notes was there. And then went to, you know, that Gold Coast area, Belmont area, you know, theater districts and stuff. Did a lot of shows in those places. We'd go out to the West Side sometimes. And I just really love it. I think it's one of the best cities to do comedy in, period. So when you travel around... The United States during st doing stand-up, do you prefer large cities or do you like some of the smaller cities where maybe the population that comes into the club is a little less obvious uh, as far as their political leanings or what they're into? Do you find that more of a challenge? I definitely don't have favorites outside of, yeah, obviously Chicago, but I definitely don't have places where I am don't want to go or am... am more excited to go than others you know for me it's all part of the experience of trying to do comedy everywhere because it's the only way to really feel funny is if you're universally funny you never want to go to a place and then have the excuse oh this is a small town or oh this is a big city they just don't get me i i think that every comedian working wants to be funny to everyone mm -hmm. and so um as far as challenges I don't know. I mean, political leanings haven't really influenced most of my stand-up, no matter what people are in the crowd. they might have. I might have one or two jokes that they don't like, but I'm 
I'm not steeped in politics for the course of my hour. So there's very little to disagree with. I'm mostly talking about my life. So it's <laughs> probably pretty you can't hard disagree to get with a, my life. It's my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I, you can get offended at my life. <laughs> that, that's a fair point. You know, I think, I mean, as I've said on this podcast so many times, the, the way comedians shine a light on society, you know, and I study classics as an undergraduate and, you know, every society is from the Greeks and the Romans, um, Egyptians, you know, they've always said you need doctor, lawyer, educator, and comedian. Those are like the four essential ingredients to a productive society. And I think that the way you all organize your lives and put them on a platter for us to digest and see ourselves in your own lives, I think it's just such a brilliant way to contribute to society. Like, do you... I, that's do you, very nice of you. Organize <laughs> is a strong word. That's... That's <laughs> so wait, so organized. When, you, when you got into comedy, I mean, was it just sort of like, everyone tells me I'm funny, so let me just do this? Or did you really have, like, something that you needed to get out to say? Like, how did we... How did we get here? It was a little bit of both. I definitely had people who thought that I was funny. I don't think because I'm not I'm not the most extroverted person. So then a lot of people were surprised that I did stand up when I told them I had started. But then people would tell me I was funny in conversation and and stuff. And I definitely had ideas that I felt were really funny or interesting that I really wanted to uh, express to people. That's one of the main things that comedy taught me was was how to talk to people to a certain degree. So I'm very blessed to have it in my life for that reason, especially. But I think that for the most part, you know, it was it was just you're you're always in search of something. And I think when you when you find it, even if you can't place it, you sort of know you you're there. And, and from the first few times I did stand up, I felt like I was home, you know. And so I just kept pursuing it because of that. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. We're listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm jogging to Josh Johnson. I'm fascinated by comedians and the way you all organize your lives and your lives for us. Uh, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Okay, we're back with Josh Johnson. We're talking about all things comedy, politics, and his new comedy special streaming on Peacock titled Up Here Killing Myself. Josh, are you ready for question number three? I feel almost good. Let's do it. So this comedian was the first black person to host the Oscars solo. Here's a hint. It's not Sammy Davis Jr. or Richard Pryor. They did host the ceremony, but they share the hosting gig with others. This person hosted the Oscars solo. Who is this person? Ugh. Um, Chris Rock? No, the answer is Whoopi Goldberg. In 1994, oh. Whoopi became the first black person and the first black woman to host Hollywood's biggest night completely by herself. Welcome to Oscar 66. So they went and gave me a live microphone for three hours. <laughs> there haven't been this many showbiz executives so nervous sweating over one woman since Heidi Fleiss, honey. She hosted the Academy Awards again in 1996. 1999 and 2002, Whoopi is one of only four women to be crowned an EGOT winner. That means she's taken home an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, 
She was the second black woman to ever win an Academy Award for her role in Ghost. Don't you goddamn it me. Don't you take the Lord's name in vain with me. You understand? I don't take Would that. You relax. Man. No, you relax. You're the dead guy. You want me to help you? You better apologize. And she was the first black woman to be nominated in both the Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress categories. And before making it big as both a comedian and an actress, Whoopi once worked at a funeral home where she applied makeup to corpses. So, I mean, you know, you think, I think, sadly, a lot of people, at least, you know, my students and, and a lot of folks who, who don't pay too much attention to comedy just know Whoopi Goldberg as, you know, someone who sits at the table at The View. But this woman is bad. I mean, she's just like her career and her resume are just insanity. Um, have you ever had the pleasure of meeting her? I have not. I, I've been a, a fan for a long time because, you know, like most kids, I think there's this there's this era of knowing Eddie Murphy, knowing Whoopi Goldberg, knowing them in the in the general, you know, uh, makeup of Hollywood, but knowing them from movies, whereas people who are older than me know them from stand up, watch the stand up when it came out and everything went to shows back when they were doing lots of stand-up. And I know that Whoopi Goldberg had this uh, Mom's Mabley show uh-huh. that uh-huh. I never got the pleasure of you know, seeing live or anything, but is, is someone who's just always been an incredible talent, um, whether it was stand-up or acting. It's just wild. I didn't know about the EGOT. That's, that's crazy. Oh, yeah, she's definitely got an EGOT, you know, and now that Jennifer Hudson has one, you know, Jennifer Hudson's following in her footsteps. But, yeah, I think about someone like Whoopi and these debates that, you know, unfortunately circle every few years, you know, are women as funny as men? And I know that you, you know, you collaborate with women on The Daily Show. You know, have you toured and, you know, been in the comedy scene and had these discussions with female comedians and sort of some of the similarities and differences that you all face when going on stage in front of different audiences? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. And I think that, I do think that a lot of women doing comedy are in an unenviable position where one of the things that is a hindrance is the ways that, if you look, you take a man, right? Take a man and joke about a man. Anything that happens to a man can be funny. And it can be seen as funny by everybody because as men have been seen as the sort of standard experience. So then you can put a man in whatever situation and it could still be seen as funny, no matter how good it is or how horrible it is, right? <laughs> so if someone's doing a joke about how they got mugged as a man, you know, man doing stand-up talks about how he got robbed or something, there isn't... There isn't um, a quick instinct in the audience to protect him or feel sorry for him, especially if he's already laughing about the thing. And that is something that's working against women when they're doing comedy. If a woman goes up there and tells you about how she got mugged, people are instantly like, oh, no, I'm so sorry that happened to you. It's a very different way that we perceive men and women. So then the reactions for comedy are going to be are, are going to be instinctually different to where a, a woman that's doing comedy has to overcome those hurdles and be aware of them and still have like the stage presence and the storytelling and the joke writing of a, of a male comic, but it is another hurdle to overcome. And it's just part of being in our society. It's not even a, 
Right. It's, uh, it's the uh, constructs that's before of the you get to any sexism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The constructs and the intersectionality of, in- of race and gender for black female comedians. Yeah. So so then you'll find that that's why some people have such a a tough stage persona is to overall negate those expectations of needing help, needing to be looked after, needing, you know, concern more than just needing to make people laugh with the jokes that they've written. And so I think that that is a that's the biggest hurdle. And that's before you get to any actual inequity. That's that's baseline. Everyone shows up with the best of intentions. There's still going to be I can I can go up and tell jokes about how Maybe my girlfriend slapped me and we're all still ready to laugh. And I'll be like, well, look, let me tell you what I did. I don't know. Like, you know, a woman walks up and she's talking about how her boyfriend smacked her around. It's like these better be some great jokes because now we're all like, are you in a bad situation? Do you need help? Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. You, you know, know and before we go to the commercial break, I just want our listeners to sort of reflect on, you know, that Chris jo- Chris Rock joke where he says, you know, he wouldn't ever hit a woman, but he'd shake her. And so, you know, it's huge laughs. But. I'm curious as to to think about if a woman told the joke from a different vantage point about her boyfriend shaking her as opposed to um, Chris Rock doing the shaking. Um, hmm. Josh, you're giving us some things to think about of Black's questions. We're going to take a quick commercial break and, and ponder some of these thoughts. Okay, we're back. I was Josh Johnson, comedian, podcaster, and host of the new special on Peacock, Up Here Killing Myself. Josh, we had a little stumble in question number three, but that's quite all right. Are we ready for question number four? We can do it. Sure, yeah. Yep, we're doing <laughs> it. This hip-hop group made history in 2002 when they played at Lincoln Center in Manhattan, just down the street from my office, the same place that houses the Metropolitan Opera and the New York City Ballet. The group's founding members met while they were attending the Philadelphia High School for the Creative and Performing Arts. Can you name this group? I wanted to say Outcast initially. Okay. Um, but then you said Philadelphia, and I was like, nah. Um, All right. Okay. Because Outcast is the South is something to say. Shout yeah. out to ATL. Yeah. So the key word is Philadelphia, high school for creative and performing art. Ding, ding, uh, ding. Uh, uh, salt and pepper. Okay. So salt and pepper, I believe, is from Long Island. The answer is uh, the roots. The band was formed Jeez. in 1987 by Questlove and Tariq Black Thought Trotter. The Roots are known for their jazzy approach to hip-hop music and the incorporation of live instruments. Rolling Stone magazine named The Roots one of the greatest live acts in the world. And since 2009, they've been the house band for Jimmy Fallon's Late Night Show. The band holds a one-day musical festival in Philadelphia every year called The Roots Picnic. I believe they've extended it now to like two or three days. And they also host a jam session every night before the Grammy Awards. Both gatherings have become star-studded events. The Roots are now global, you know, far, far away from just, you know, playing clubs in Philly. I know you're a writer for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and you've gone back and performed on the show, which is fantastic. Tell us what it's like getting to work with, you know, legendary talent like Jimmy Fallon and also The Roots. Um, Everyone that I've met in The Roots, I met pretty much one at a time just like individually and everything and they are all so dope like every one of them has been so cool you know like black thought had me out to his show one time this is before the pandemic he was doing a show during new york comedy festival and he hit me up to do it um quest love is so talented and 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 so like kind-hearted to chat with and everything uh james is amazing too so 
it, it really was cool that not only are they these top tier musicians that, that are incredibly accomplished, but they're still very down to earth, very laid back and, and willing to chat to anybody that, you know, walks up. And even though, even though I was working there, so they didn't have to worry about me, it was a situation where I just like got past some security and was like, I'm a fan. You know? Right. It was like, no, you see me every day, but still, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm big into all of them and I, I appreciate their work very much. What? Well, I, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, pretty soon there's going to be a whole generation of people who know Questlove as either documentarian or a food critic and food scholar, you know, and they'll say like, oh, yeah, he's also in this band. You know, I mean, his his career has just um, gone in so many beautifully interesting directions. But, you know, you just said something that made me think about Joan Rivers, who was my favorite comedian growing up, you know, and, and just like this idea about being kind uh, and respectful to all different types of people because you never know who you'll meet kind of going up and going down. You know, in her career, she played venues of 20 people, 200 people, 2,000 people, 20,000 people. And then she had times where she went from 20,000 down to 20 um, and was really thankful to be able to play a venue with just 20 people, you know, and it's because she'd been kind to others and they they opened up that door. And so I love this idea that super talented people you know, across various um, uh, occupations and talents are just um, really decent human beings. You know, it makes me happy to know that. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Josh, last official question. Are you ready for question number five? Yes. Yeah, I finally feel ready. Okay, question number five. This state has the second largest percentage of Black residents in the country, only behind Mississippi. This state also houses six historically Black colleges. What state is it? Georgia? That's a solid guess, but the answer is Louisiana. African Americans make up 33% of the state's population. Uh, Formerly enslaved Africans were brought to Louisiana and have a long-lasting effect on culture, music, cuisine, jazz, blues. All types of music are traced back to Black Louisianans. And as I mentioned, there are six HBCUs in Louisiana, and the state is also home to the only HBCU college system, which is the Southern University System. So I know that you spent a little bit of time in Alexandria, Louisiana. When was that and how was that? So that that's actually where I was born. Um, I, I went to college in Shreveport and Alexandria was like home. That's where everyone lived for a while until, you know, we all sort of migrated out and everything. Uh, but yeah, Alexandria is it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all right. <laughs> it's, it's fine. How was it like living in the South? Because when I spent time in Chicago and the Illinois area, I was like, oh, all these people are Southerners. And so, you know, that, that kind of migratory route. Uh, but how was it, you know, going to college in the South, in, in the, the proper South, not just Chicago with, with the expats and transplants? Um, I think the th- this, this is my main thing. I think that when you are growing up in the South as a as a Black person, especially a Black person that gets into comedy, I think that you move through more spaces with um with ease especially in comparison to other people because you've been around so many types of people and you've been around so many types of people that didn't want you around you've learned how to talk to people you've learned what the dog whistles were you just you you've learned a deeper understanding of um a melting pot 
than I think a lot of people get in other places. I think some people really do grow up with everyone thinking the way that they think, and then they have these culture shocks. And I, I definitely had less culture shocks moving to Chicago, moving to New York, than some of my friends did who were moving from, let's say, from um, you know Florida to New York, or you know from uh, Connecticut to Philly. Like, and I think that some of that is, it's very hard. It's, it's very difficult to truly, truly make bubbles in some parts of the South because even if it's against all of our will, we're, we're all around each other, you know what I mean? And not in a New York way, not in a we're on top of each other way, but just in a we run in each other's circles consistently. And, you know, listening to you say that makes me think about, you know, Pat Brown, who's a comedian from the South, Roy Wood Jr., Ricky Smiley, all of them have sort of mentioned how the South has really helped with their comedy because you have so and not saying that you know new yorkers aren't diverse we definitely are you know malcolm x says anything south of the canadian border is the u.s south which i fundamentally agree but i do think that there is something about being in the deep south and telling jokes uh and getting people of all different stripes to to laugh and to be present with you as you you know as you've laid out tell your story um is there do you have like a do you have any go-to like do you shift any of your jokes say when you're in the deep south versus say when you're in Chicago, or is it just, hey, listen, you're going to get these jokes and whether you fully appreciate them and understand them, that's kind of on you. I I will probably add stuff, but I don't take anything out. Uh, um, okay. I, I think that everyone wants to have the feeling that the show that they came to is for them. So because of that, I'll, I'll add things. But as far as the things that I think are funny and the things that I'm working on, I don't really shift too much because... You don't you don't want to be universal through being a chameleon and always sort of playing to every room that you're in in a way that's not authentic. You want to be universal through you having things to say that everybody can relate to. And you won't know everyone can relate unless you try it for everyone. Right. Oh, I love that. OK, Josh, I'm just I, I really love the way you think about comedy. OK, we're going to take a quick break. You've done very well. We're going to come back and we're going to play the Black Lightning Round. Hi, you're listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm Christina Greer. I'm here with Josh Johnson, comedian and podcaster. Josh, are you ready for the Black Lightning Round? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. let's do it. Here we go. There are no right or wrong answers. I just want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind once I ask the question, okay? Mm-hmm. If you could go back and perform on one of these stages, are you picking Deaf Comedy Jam or Comic View? Um, I think Comic View. Because Deaf Comedy Jam had such high stakes. It really was like, if you go back and watch it now, oh, yeah. you'll see oh, the yeah. people that bombed. And you're like, uh-huh. oh, oh, no. Uh-huh. I didn't even realize that was an option. When I was little, I felt like I only saw people kill. And so I feel like Comic View was a way to be just as funny and get people just as hyped. But not have the ooh, the stakes of like, it the took them of too the long. <laughs> yeah, like, because... Sometimes it'll be stuff that's not even quite your fault. Like maybe it takes them so long to load in the second audience that they've been waiting right. for hours and they're, and they're, and they're like, and not in a good like, way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Second one. What's better, the original Fresh Prince of Bel Air or the new Peacock remake, Bel Air? Is it okay? Because I'm from the 90s, it's going to be very hard for anything to compete with the original. But I do think that the new Bel Air on on a long enough timeline is going to more than catch up because they're doing such interesting things with it that I personally feel like 
we have all the nostalgia and nostalgia is very hard to beat. But I think that when someone's doing something new and interesting and engaging, it if you if you give it time to breathe, it's hard for it to not level up with right. with the thing you already love. That's true. And it's a little darker and a little more nuanced. I haven't seen uh-huh. a lot of it, but I, I am excited about it. Okay. Who would you rather have a drink with? Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, or Kevin Hart? Um huh. I think I think Chappelle, because I think Chappelle has clocked more hours of doing comedy than anybody working that I know of. And I think his perspective on comedy and and his thoughts on how to and when to make people laugh would be would be incredible. Like I think I think you go to Kevin Hart for you know, advice about jokes and and business advice, especially. And then you go to rock for writing and and for, you know, creating a sort of motif that people can follow, that they can fall in love with. But I think Chappelle's because of the amount of time that he's been doing it, not just in years, but my man will just stay at the show doing his set for like over two hours, you know, (laughs) and stay present. very few people do that. Yeah. Okay, last one. Chicago deep dish pizza. Are we going to eat it or no? I definitely used to eat it, and I cannot anymore because I really want to live a long time. (laughs) I want to live for decades. I just want to be an old black man, preferably rich, but just very old, very, very like, but still spry. Like, you know those people that you're surprised they're so old? I want to be one of those old guys where you're like, how is he 70? Right. And you're like, uh, you know, I'm just chilling, just eating my vegetables, you yeah. know, keeping the antioxidants high and stuff. And then then be 90 and people are like, huh, he's 90. He's still yes. walking. And I'm like, yes. And I can hear you. Yeah. The key is water and stretching. Right. Um, You know, I, I can't wait to be one of those 90 year olds that just gets to say whatever I want. Like, whatever. You know? Yeah. Like, oh, well, she's 90. What are you going to do? Um, Mm -hmm. Josh, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I want to remind our listeners to check out Josh's comedy special now streaming on Peacock, Up Here Killing Myself. So that's Joshua Johnson. I want to thank you all for listening to The Blackest Questions. This show is produced by Sasha Armstrong and Jeffrey Trudeau. And Regina Griffin is our director of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can find more at the Grio Black Podcast Network on the Grio app, the website, or YouTube. Have a great one. The Griot Black Podcast Network presents Dear Culture, Truish Black Stories. He's simply known by one name. Ricky! Man, when the news of Ricky getting killed hit the neighborhood, everybody was sad. You know what I'm saying? Because... It's like, here's this dude, we all grew up with him, we knew him, like, you know, and like I said, he just, he was a a cool dude, he never bothered anyone, he just mind his business and go to school, play football, and that's it. I think maybe it was about splitting up. And see, that's a metaphor for life, right? When Ricky and Trey split up, that's what do everybody knows, especially if you're black, that you don't split up 
Harriet Tubman taught us that like 200 years ago. Never split up. Moments in black culture examined like never before. Join us each week as we dive into the black moments that changed us, that changed the world. Watch the full episode of this truish black story on the Griot Black Podcast Network YouTube channel or the Griot's website.